I would like to call attention once more to the words found in Paul's epistle to the Romans in chapter 12, reading verses 6, 7, and 8. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministry, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Now, we looked at that list that the Apostle gives us here of these uh, gifts uh, that are given to the members of the Christian church. We uh, looked at them one by one and we uh, underlined and emphasized the main uh, teaching concerning these gifts as we find it in the New Testament. However, I would remind you again that the Apostle is not here setting out to give us an exhaustive list. His whole object here is to show us how to use or exercise these gifts in a right manner, to avoid uh, doing so in personal terms, always looking at ourselves. The exhortation is that we are to do all things in terms of the great doctrine of the church as the body of Christ, and we are to do all things to the glory of the head of the church primarily, but also to the benefit and edification of the other members of the body. That's the thing he's concerned about. He does not set out in this chapter to deal with the gifts in the way that he does, for instance, in the first epistle to the Corinthians and in chapter 12 where you have a, a longer gift, a longer list of these various gifts. Now, we therefore should confine ourselves to this particular thing that the Apostle is pressing upon us. However, we may indulge ourselves perhaps to this extent. To explain, therefore, that there are other gifts in addition to these, and it is well always when you're reading this chapter to consult the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians in order that you may have a fuller understanding of this matter. And of course it is a most important matter as we have already seen. Indeed we can go so far as to say that the list in 1 Corinthians 12 is not complete either. There are varying gifts. Uh, I feel constrained to mention one, the uh, background in which I personally was uh, brought up was one in which one often heard the expression, the gift of prayer. And I'm quite sure that it is an accurate term to use. It's been a very impressive thing to me throughout the years to notice how certain men are given this particular gift of prayer. I'm referring, of course, to public prayer. And I wouldn't hesitate to say that it is a distinct and a separate gift I mention this in order to try to show yet more clearly the wonderful character of the church, and particularly from this standpoint of the gifts that are dealt, as Paul puts it in the third verse here, or as they are dispensed, if you like, by the Holy Spirit. Let me give you one illustration of what I mean. I remember very well many years ago, I think it was somewhere around about 1932, as far as I can recall. I was preaching in a certain place afternoon, no, morning, morning and evening, 
It was a centenary occasion, I remember very well, and I had been preaching twice the day before somewhere else and had traveled and had got to this place and had preached in the morning and then I had listened to a number of people giving a bit of a historical account of the church in the afternoon and then there were large numbers of visiting preachers and others there to tea and the result was that I began to feel very tired but I still had to preach in the evening and I remember asking to be excused and I went and slept. However, when I woke up, I found that everybody had gone out of the house into the evening service, and I was alone, but I rushed to the chapel. Now, this is the thing I wanted to tell you. I remember entering the chapel and walking forward, and I could see a man in the pulpit whom I'd never seen before. I knew nothing about him. I got in just as they were finishing the first hymn. And I sat down and uh, began to listen to this man reading the scriptures. He obviously had a gift in that respect also. And it is quite a gift. Reading of the scriptures is a, is a very special manner. There are many ways in which people read the scriptures. But this man obviously had an unusual gift. However, after the second hymn, this man began to pray. And it's something I shall never forget as long as I live. I've described how tired I was, how I was on the verge in many ways, I have no doubt, of exhaustion the difference between tiredness and exhaustion. But this was exhaustion. But I remember distinctly how after this man had been praying for a very short time, I was completely revived. I, I don't think I've ever heard a man pray in public as that man prayed that evening. Uh, it's very difficult to describe these things, but it was true prayer in the spirit. And as he was praying, as I say, I was physically restored and revived and was able to enter into that pulpit uh, full of vigor more than I'd perhaps ever known in my life before and it was entirely due to this man's prayer and I remember commenting about it afterwards to the minister with whom I was staying the night oh yes he said haven't you heard him before I said no I'd never even seen him before and he told me a story how about uh, 12 years perhaps before that there was a great uh, association held in that very self-same place. And uh, the last day of the association always consisted of preaching services, morning, afternoon, and evening, with two preachers in each session. And how all the best preachers in that denomination in Wales at the time were invited to preach there on this great occasion. But said the minister to me, you know, after it was all over, and for many, many months afterwards, what the people were talking about was not the preaching of the great preachers. It was the prayer offered by that same man who offered prayer tonight at the 10 o'clock service in the morning, he said. Now, that is what I mean by a gift of prayer. The man apparently was not a very good preacher. He was a minister, but he was not a very good preacher. His gift was this astonishing gift of prayer. Don't ask me to define it, but that it is a very real thing there is no question at all. I've known many such people. I knew many people who seemed to me received this gift of prayer in the Welsh revival of 1904 and 5. In their baptism of the Spirit then, they were given this particular gift. And though many of them afterwards had become very ordinary Christians, if they took part in a public prayer meeting, they became transformed people. And it was amazing to listen to them pray. One often found it difficult to reconcile such a prayer with such a person. I can only say that it must have been due to this particular gift of prayer, or gift in prayer, if you like, 
I don't care how you put it, but that it is a very definite and distinct thing, I have no doubt uh, whatsoever. Well, we leave that at that. And we must be careful not to put a limit to the gifts that the Spirit may choose to give us. Remember that again, in 1 Corinthians 12, the Apostle is there once more primarily concerned not to write a disquisition on this matter of the gifts, but again uh, to control excesses and to deal with the doctrine in terms of the great doctrine of the Church as the body of Christ and the unity of the body, so that we mustn't uh, put these limits of ours upon the number of possible gifts that the Spirit may choose in his sovereign will and power to give to any of us. Very well, we leave it at that. Let me also underline something which I've said, I think, more than once, but uh, I understand that some people still haven't quite got it. And that is, I am not saying the scriptures don't teach that it's a case of one man, one gift. One man may have several gifts. I think I indicated that it's clear in the case of the Apostle Paul that he had several of these gifts, many of them. And that is something that one should expect. And that is something that is still possible. However, having dealt with that, let us now turn to what I was hinting at last Friday night. There are two or three questions, it seems to me, that we have got to consider in the light of this particular teaching that is before us. Here's one of them, and people are very concerned about this. How are these gifts given to us? Or if you like it the other way around, how do we receive any of these gifts. Now, here is a, an interesting and an important matter, and in some ways a rather difficult one. Do these gifts come to us directly, immediately, or do they come to us indirectly, mediately, through somebody else, and through the laying on of hands of somebody else? Now, you can't evade that question, because uh, it's raised in the New Testament itself, and in the subsequent history of the Church, it becomes a matter of interest many times, and is certainly a matter of interest to a large number of people at the present time. What is the answer to this question? Well, as I've said, it's difficult. It seems to me that the only answer we can give is this, that the same thing is true about the receiving of the gifts as is true about the receiving of the Holy Spirit himself in the baptism of the Spirit. Now, you know, in that connection, the book of Acts of the Apostles teaches us quite plainly that it can happen in both ways. The Spirit came, the Holy Spirit came upon the Apostles and the others in the upper room on the day of Pentecost directly, immediately. Nobody laid hands on them at all. They were baptized with the Holy Ghost as they were there together in that room praying. He fell upon them. And as you know, the same thing happened in the case of Cornelius and his household. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Ghost fell upon Cornelius and his household. But then there are other instances, like that, of course, of a Peter and John going down to Samaria after the preaching of Philip, and they laid their hands upon them. And you get the same in the case of the Apostle Paul himself with Ananias. And you get it, of course, again in that uh, 
incident in Ephesus recorded at the beginning of the 19th chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, where, the, where these people, after they had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, only were baptized with the Holy Ghost when the apostle laid his hands upon them. Well now, in other words, the teaching is, I say quite plainly, that both things are true. And I would argue that the same, therefore, is undoubtedly true with regard to the gifts also. Um, it's clear in the book of Acts that the, this gift was a gift that was possessed by the apostles. But it isn't confined to them because, as I've said, in the case of Saul of Tarsus himself, it was through Ananias, who was not an apostle, that this came to him, and Ananias was not an apostle. There are other questions that arise in this connection in the New Testament. What is the meaning of that term in the second verse of the sixth chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews? You remember that the author, having said, leaving therefore the principles of the gospel of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, and of laying on of hands. What's the meaning of that? Well, it does seem to me that we've got to grant that this is probably a reference to the kind of thing that I've reminded you of there, as taught in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, that uh, there was a laying on of hands through which action the Spirit came in this particular form upon believers. And the subsequent history of the church seems to establish that point quite definitely, because that was a custom that continued afterwards, and indeed it is the origin of what is called confirmation, as it is practiced in the Anglican church and in the Lutheran church and various other churches still. The object of that was that after baptism, whether it was a short or a long interval, doesn't matter. Hands were laid upon these people in order that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Then you've got uh, other references which uh, are of interest. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.14? He says, Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. And then take with that what he says to him in the second epistle, in the first chapter and the sixth verse. Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. Now what do those references mean? Well, it seems to me that they really are not a difficulty for us in the matter that we are considering for this reason. That I would argue that the apostle there is referring to Timothy being set aside and set apart for his peculiar office, which was that of an evangelist. And the apostle is there reminding him of his ordination as an evangelist. So that it isn't exactly the same thing as we are considering. Of course, the New Testament teaches that uh, an office is a gift. 
That is why you have in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Ephesians 4, under this heading of the gifts, the spiritual gifts, you get the offices mentioned as well as these particular abilities. And that, of course, is the case for this reason. That the men appointed to offices are the men who already have the gifts. So that naturally you move from the gifts to certain offices where certain particular gifts are able to manifest themselves in operation and in exercise. Now there, it seems to me, is the main result at which we can arrive as we look at this matter. The question I'm asking is, how do the gifts come to us? And I would say that we must be careful not to be too dogmatic and confine it to one way or the other, as the Spirit may come directly, immediately, or through the, the intermediary of some other person in the laying on of hands. So, with regard to the gifts, I would say that both are possibilities. The only qualification I add is that the subsequent history of the Church seems to indicate this, that the commoner experience is that they come directly and immediately, rather than through the mediation of the laying on of hands. I'm not excluding the second, but I am saying that it is rare, and that therefore if you hear, as you may well do at the present time, of a great deal of this laying on of hands, as if that were the universal method, it is not only unscriptural, it is not consistent with what seems to be very definitely and clearly what has been happening in the history of the church ever since. I don't think this should stumble us at all. You would expect that men like the apostles were given unusual gifts and endowments. And there is no doubt at all but that one of their gifts was this gift of being able to impart the gift of the Spirit with accompanying gifts to other people. However, we leave that at that. Now, there is one problem that seemed to me to arise from this teaching here in these three verses in Romans 12. But it also raises another question. And I feel constrained to put this before you also. What light does this teaching here cast upon the life of the early church? It's a most important question, this. And I'm going to show you why I think it is so important. You read this, and I say, if you read it intelligently and spiritually, you should immediately say, well now, what sort of life was the life of the early church then? Here he is addressing the church. He's laid down his doctrine that we being many are one body in Christ and every one members one of another, having therefore gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, and so on. He is showing them how they ought to conduct themselves in the life of the church. And that tells us at once something about the life of the early church. What does it tell us about it? Well, the thing it obviously tells us at once is this. That the life of the early church was the life of a functioning body. The church was clearly, in practice, a body. And the various parts and members of the body were functioning. The apostle takes that for granted. 
He says, I know that in your church there at Rome, there are some who've got this gift of prophecy. There are others who've got the gift of ministry. Others the gift of teaching. Others the gift of exhortation. Others this gift of giving. Others of ruling. Others of showing mercy. He therefore gives us a picture of the life of the early church. And when you go on to 1 Corinthians uh, 12, 13, and 14, particularly 14, you get exactly the, uh, the same thing. And uh, you see at once, as I say, that the life of the church was the life of a body with the various members of the body functioning, taking part, playing their part. For instance, uh, look at this as the Apostle puts it in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 26, etc. How is it then, brethren, when ye come together... Every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edify. Now, in teaching them how to control the life of the church, the apostle is incidentally giving us a description of the life of the church. And as I say, you are bound to come to this conclusion, that that was the great outstanding characteristic of the life of the early church. These differing gifts which had been given to the various members of the church, were in exercise, were manifesting themselves, were showing themselves. Now, why do I call attention to this? Well, I call attention to this for this reason. If that is the picture that is given of the daily life or the regular life of the early church, well, then the question we ask is this one. How then have things become as they are today? Take these verses 6, 7, and 8 in Romans 12. Is that a picture of the functioning of the church today? 1 Corinthians 14. Now, this becomes important in this way for us. Are you going to say that, oh, no, no, of course, that's got nothing to do with us. That was the only church, the early church. That was before we'd got the scriptures. Well, of course, if you begin to say that, you'll find that very little of the New Testament applies to you today at all. You'll, be, you'll have to keep on saying about most of it. Oh, yes, but that was only the early church. How do you decide when it was only the early church and when now? Now, that's about the worst form of dispensationalism that one can ever be guilty of. But there's a great deal of that at the present time. And I think this is one of the most urgent matters confronting us in these days through which we are passing. Or let me put it to you like this. Here we are in this age which is called the ecumenical age. Everybody's talking about the church. Now, that's a very good thing. We all ought to be talking about the church. It has been one of the greatest defects, perhaps, of our evangelicalism in particular, that we have not talked sufficiently about the church. We've been individualistic, and we've been evangelistic almost solely. And there's been no talk about the church. And it's obviously quite wrong, because you can't read your New Testament without seeing that the doctrine of the church is a doctrine that's in the very forefront the whole time. And here it is before us now. So it is our duty. Well, I say, the age in which we are living is forcing us and compelling us to do this, because everybody is talking about the church, and about the unity of the church, and about the functioning of the church. Here we are, they say, the world is becoming increasingly secular and materialistic. The church is God's agency for evangelism. 
So they say we must be right about the church. Well, this is right only on one condition. And that is that we do all this in a scriptural manner. And here it seems to me there is a heaven-sent opportunity for us all at the present time. We must say yes. We must be right in our ideas as to the nature of the Christian church and as to the functioning of the Christian church. But we say there is only one way of doing that, and that is we must go back to the New Testament itself. And you see, our verses tonight are compelling us to do that. But here comes in this danger that some of us want to say, oh, of course, all this got nothing to do with us. That was only the early church. So we rule it all out and we start thinking at the Reformation or perhaps even the next century uh, when the Westminster Confession was drawn up. And that governs the whole of our thinking. We just start there and we just want to get back to that and no further. Now that seems to me to be not only wrong but completely unscriptural. We are to go back to the New Testament itself and we have no right to lay down any uh, definitions in this respect unless it be strictly in accord with the teaching of the New Testament. Well now, here it is. We are confronted by it. The apostle is writing to the church at Rome and he says this is how you are to function and he's assuming that it was a life in which the various members were giving evidence and manifestations of the various gifts that they have received. Very well, but let me try to therefore give you a picture of the early church as we find it in the New Testament. It's clear that the apostles held a very special position. The Apostle Paul puts it at the end of Ephesians 2 that the apostles and prophets are the very foundation of the church. That's obvious. I don't think we need to stay with that. They were obviously in a very special position because our Lord had chosen them and had given them the message, had given them not only power but infallibility. They were infallible in their teaching. So they are the basis and the foundation. It's equally clear that the evangelists in the New Testament do not correspond to what we think of when we use the term evangelist today. The evangelist in the New Testament is a man who acted as a deputy of the apostle, of the apostles, Timothy, for instance, and Titus, and people like that, Philip. The evangelists of the New Testament were men who were sent by the apostles as their representatives and to whom their power had been delegated to perform particular functions. If you read the epistles to Timothy and Titus, you'll see exactly what I mean. The evangelists had great authority and great power, but it was all delegated. They were not apostles, but they deputized for them. So that you find that uh, they're mentioned always in that kind of connection. Apostles, prophets, evangelists. They come in that order, and they always come before the teachers, etc. Now these were all, surely, we must agree, special men, special officers, clearly raised, in order to found the Christian church. I think we must all agree that they certainly are in a special category entirely on their own. And as they belong to the foundation, they don't get repeated. You don't repeat the foundation. You build on the foundation. You repeat the individual stones in the building as it goes up, but you can't repeat a foundation. 
That is, once and for all, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And for this purpose, the apostles include the evangelists, because they were their deputies. But, what is quite clear is that though this is true of these special people, that still the great characteristic of the life of the early church was this participation of all the members. This great analogy of the church as the body of Christ, which the apostle repeats so frequently in his different epistles, it carries that notion inevitably. It wasn't merely the apostles and prophets and evangelists who did things and everybody else just sitting and listening. No, no. The whole church was active and was participating in the life. But, having said that, we've got to go on a bit and say this. It is equally clear also that other offices began to appear and to emerge. Now, I read that uh, section out of the sixth chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles at the beginning in order that I uh, might remind you of how this happened and how this definite office of a deacon first came in in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministrations. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, looking out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost, whom we may appoint over this business. Now, that's, you see, how it happened. It happened because of the conditions that had arisen. The multiplicity of converts raised the problem. And you remember how they were living a common kind of life so that the sheer necessity of events and of facts led to the need of a certain division of labor and the assigning of certain particular duties and functions to certain people. That's how it arose, clearly under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. There is this extraordinary element about it. On the one hand, it looks like an improvisation. But when you remember the character of the early church, filled with the Holy Spirit, this term keeps on being repeated, you can see that the improvisation, if you want to use such a term, was that which was suggested by the Holy Spirit himself. Then, in addition to that, you get certain other offices appearing. Uh, the one, uh, the one in particular and that is the office of what is called a presbyter, or an elder, or an overseer. Now, I keep on saying or, because I want to indicate that these are alternative names or designations for the same function, for the same office. Now, these were men, uh, and the names you see, presbyter means... Uh, First and primary, somebody of age, old. Elder means exactly the same thing. But overseer doesn't carry so much the connotation of age as of function, of what they did, what their work was. Now, there is very little doubt, it seems to me, and most authorities seem to be agreed about this, that these ideas which were adopted by the early church under the leadership of the Holy Spirit were a carrying on of the way in which 
the worship and the life of the synagogues had been ordered. You remember how the Jews had built their synagogues and they used to meet in their synagogues Sunday by Sunday. And you find there was an order in the worship. As you read about our Lord in the fourth chapter of Luke's Gospel, going to his hometown of Nazareth and going as his custom was on the Sabbath to the synagogue and how they handed him the scroll and so on. Now, you, you see that there was a kind of order in the worship of the synagogue. And there were their elders. These men, these senior men, these men of ability and so on, who had been selected as the leaders. And there was generally one of them who was appointed as a kind of presiding officer in the particular service of the church. Well now, these elders, presbyters, elders, overseers, came into being in the early church. And their function was primarily that of rule and of government. But, as we saw last Friday night, some of these, in addition, had a special gift of teaching. Apt to teach, we are told about them in the pastoral epistles. But here they are, it, it, it's a particular office, it's a particular order of people. These elders, presbyters, overseers. They're there for the ordering of the life of the church. And uh, one of these functions is to teach and to instruct and to build up in our most holy faith. Now, as far as the New Testament teaching is concerned, leaving out the apostles and prophets and evangelists, as I say, there were only two offices, and they were the presbyter and the deacon, the elder and the deacon, the overseer and the deacon. Now, there are the two offices. How are they chosen? Well, it's very interesting again to notice what the teaching tells us about this. Did you notice that statement in the 28th verse of the 20th chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, which we read at the beginning? The apostle is addressing these elders of the church at Ephesus who have come down to bid him farewell as he was on his way up to Jerusalem. And he says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Now, you see, I ask the question, how are these chosen? The first answer must always be by the Holy Ghost. It is the Holy Ghost who is the prime mover in this matter. But, Having said that, and you must always say that and always start with it, the next thing that is perfectly clear is that it was the church herself, under the leading and the guidance of the Holy Ghost, who chose these people. There it is in Act 6. This is the thing that is said by the apostles. Wherefore, brethren, look you out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. The choice is made by the church. And it's very important that this should be emphasized. This is something that is of tremendous importance at this present time. You will read almost every day of the week, not only in religious papers, but in the secular press, this talk about one church, one church in every country. The territorial church, 
an all-inclusive, comprehensive church in every country. That's what they're aiming at in this country. There's to be one church only in England, another one in Scotland. Uh, there to be an intercommunion, but a territorial church. And they always have this. Of course, it will be Episcopal in its government. It will be governed, they say, by bishops. Now, that's why I'm putting all this before you. Here, you see, we are reminded that the choice is made by the people, by the church. Indeed, you read the most extraordinary thing in the 13th chapter of Acts, right at the very beginning. Now, there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon, etc. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed, that's the church, remember, and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. The church exercises this choice. But there is still one other step in this, and that is an action which was taken by the apostles. Take, for instance, what you read in the 14th chapter of Acts in verse 23. We read here, about uh, Paul and Barnabas concluding a journey. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. When they had ordained them elders in every church. What does that mean? Well, it's quite clear that this was an action taken by, by Paul and Barnabas. They ordained the elders. What's the point of all this, says someone? Well, I'll tell you what the point of all this is this. This is one of the great arguments of the Roman Catholic Church and the Church of England. This is one of their great arguments for saying that only a bishop can ordain a man to be an elder. So it's a very important question for us. Are you quite happy to go into a comprehensive church which is episcopally governed? Are you prepared to say that unless a man has been ordained by a bishop that he is not fit to administer the communion service or to baptize? These are the questions. Now, Christian people, you must not say, you cannot say that this has got nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with you. I'm trying to show you that in the New Testament it was the members of the church that did these things. And there have been forefathers of ours who've been content to die rather than give up this right of the member of the church in this matter. So that is why all this is so important. What's the meaning of this verse, therefore? Well, it says quite clearly, doesn't it, that it was Barnab the Paul and Barnabas who ordained these men, undoubtedly by laying their hands upon them. But it does not say that it was Barnabas and Paul who chose them. No, I think that the, what we are told in Acts 6 governs this as it governs all this matter everywhere. There is the instruction. Wherefore, brethren, look you out among yourselves, seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this matter. Then you go on to read this. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they, the multitude, chose Stephen and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they, the members of the church, set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they, the apostles, laid their hands on them. 
Now that seems to me uh, to be the order, and it seems perfectly plain and clear that the choice is made by the members of the church. And they set them apart, and then this official act of ordination is something that was done by the apostles, and you will find in the uh, pastoral epistles was also done by the evangelists acting as the delegates uh, or the uh, representatives of the apostles. That is why in 1 Timothy 3 you get the apostle Paul reminding Timothy of what must be true of men whom he as the delegate and representative of the apostle is going to ordain to these particular offices in the church. So that we come to this conclusion that the choice was made by the church, the multitude, the members of the church, but the official act was by these leaders in the church. Not only that, we find something further, that as the years passed, there was a further development in the ordering of the life of the church. You see, from a simple beginning, when you've just got a gathering of people who've believed and who are baptized with the Holy Ghost and have received these gifts, this element of order becomes necessary. And as you follow it along, you find that it becomes more and more so. There is obviously a suggestion in the New Testament that amongst these elders, that some one or another was appointed to preside. You'd have a number of elders, but one seems to be presiding. Now, what's the evidence for this? Well, look at what happened, for instance, in the Council of Jerusalem, which is recorded in the 15th chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. There we are told that James, the brother of our Lord as an apostle, presided over the conference. Now, this is, in a sense, common sense, but it is clearly the leading of the Holy Spirit. For James is able to say, it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us. James was presiding. I believe that is the real meaning of that statement in James 3.1. Be not many masters, my brethren. They all wanted to be leading and presiding as it were at the same time. But obviously in order to conduct all things decently and in order, as Paul puts it at the end of 1 Corinthians 14, they have to decide amongst themselves who is to be put into the position of presiding elder, ruling elder, if you like, in particular over the others. Now, you might change the men from time to time, but what all I'm saying is that it is quite clear that there was this further development out of this order of elders to one who was given the position of presiding. But while all this is true, it is equally true to say that this was only for the ordering of the life. That's why Peter is so careful to tell these elders in his first epistle, chapter 5, not to lord it over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. They don't suddenly become some great and unique people, different from everybody else. No, no, not even the apostles. This element of the common life of the church is always to be preserved. So that this Apostle Paul, as we've seen in the very first chapter of this epistle, says this, I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end that you may be established. That is, he hastens to say, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. He's an apostle, and yet he's one of them. 
It's to be an exchange, mutual faith, both of you and me. The whole problem, in other words, is this. How do you combine freedom and order? How do you combine liberty and discipline? And that is the way in which the Holy, the Holy Ghost led the early church in this matter. So I sum it up for tonight, and we've got to leave it at this for tonight, by putting it like this. The picture we have in the early church is this. It is of a body of people who have believed the gospel and who have been filled with the Holy Ghost and who have received gifts acting, the gifts being demonstrated and manifested, order certainly and control, yet but the great thing is this life that is in all the parts and in all the members. It has to be controlled because of excesses, but the control doesn't mean that the members are silenced and only one man or a number of men alone are doing things. No, no, it is a pneumatic church, a pneumatic body. The life of the Spirit showing itself in all of them in these varying ways and all of them taking part in the life of the church. That's the position. These churches were individual churches. The church in Corinth, the church in Laodicea and so on and in Ephesus. They were clearly independent in their government. I haven't time to go into this tonight. I'll deal with it perhaps next week at the beginning. They were independent in their government, but they were not independent in their life. They were all interested in one another. They wanted to help one another. If they found that there was a variation in the teaching, they met together and discussed it together. But there they are. Here are these units springing up of the Roman Empire. And I've tried to describe to you the life of these individual churches. The thing I'm emphasizing is this, that there is life in every member. And it's meant to show itself in the life of the church. But that in addition, you have this order, you have this discipline, so that everything is done decently and in order. Well, I, I'm simply having to stop because of the time. You see, I haven't asked, answered my question yet. My question is this. If that is the picture given of the Christian church in the New Testament, well, let me put it like this to you. Where have we come from? Where has the church as we know her today come from? And can you justify that? And what should we be doing about it? Well, God willing, we'll go on to consider this next Friday evening. But you see, this is essential. I cannot pass these verses without raising this. It's all very well to say, yes, that's what it was like then in the first century. Nothing to do with me. Well then, as I say, most of your time when you're reading your New Testament, you're reading about something that's got nothing to do with you, which is patently wrong. All this is for us and for our guidance today in this our day and generation. And we shall be judged for our conduct in the life of the church according to this particular standard. Let us pray. O oh Lord, our oh God, we again come to thee and thank thee that with thee there is mercy that thou mayest be feared. Lord, forgive us for our ignorance. Forgive us for our prejudices. Forgive us, O Lord, that we are often so governed by our prejudices that though we say we are to be guided by thy word, we are not guided by thy word. We are guided by traditions and guided by our own prejudices. Lord, have mercy upon us. We pray thee and pardon us and forgive us. O God, give us 
such a zeal for thy name and the glory of thy church, that we shall have this one concern only, to be conformable to thy pattern and to thy purpose. Lord, hear us and bless us to this end. And now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this night and evermore. Amen.